All right, let's um, let me hear what you, you're thinking on this first one because we're gonna do the we're gonna do it like this so that way I can go to the next one. Um, what did y'all what did y'all get out of that quote? What 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 is the issue you think? I heard um, Joanne. I heard you talking, and you were you were right on. What were you saying? Tell us what you got out of it. What do you think the point of this quote is? Well, I was just thinking that. Well, as, as it said, conversion is not uniquely Christian. I mean, other people have different types of conversion. Yeah. But we were talking about it from a spiritual and um, spiritual standpoint. Um, I'm not sure what I said. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. Well, you're going at it. What makes the difference then? What makes makes conversion? Of, to me, it's the essence of who you are. Okay. Um, well, but but well, that's not what you said a minute ago. You said something really good. <laughs> Think about that. If it's if it's the essence of who you are, then I mean, you know, I was at a I was at a uh, a big mega church in Atlanta about a couple years ago, and I won't name the name because you probably know the person. I was going with a friend who was checking it out, and I wanted to go and see it. And this person basically made the case that uh, you can. He was comparing Christianity to Buddhism. And it was very clear that he didn't know a Buddhist. <laughs> because if you did, the very characteristic that he was describing would be you know, uniquely Christian. Well, I would say most of us who know deeply committed Buddhist people would say, oh, no, most Buddhists are more that than most Christians I know. And that's legitimate. I mean, you know, if you think about Eastern religion, if you think about Buddhism, um, there's a deep, deep appreciation for uh, a genteel respect for other people, a genteel humility about oneself, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you'd say those are Christian virtues, right? But they're not uniquely Christian. There are many religions that have deeply Christian virtues if we would describe them as Christian. People who are humble, people who are, I mean, I guess you'd have to be like me who grew up on the wrong side of the track, because I still know that I'm a worse Christian than most non-Christians, because I do have a lot of bad crap in my life. In fact, I still say crap as an example. I say that because that's a joke in my family. Um, when I was dating my wife, like my second date, I'm over at her house. And I just kept saying crap. <laughs> and she kept saying, that's just a horrible word or something like that. She's my nice little pious church girl. And, um, and so I swore to her that I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I will never say crap again. And every time I do, <laughs> um, I will put a dollar under that. She had this little statuette in her, in her living room uh, at her house. And I said, I'll put a dollar under that statuette. And it was 15 minutes later and it came out. And I put a dollar on that statuette. Do you know 36 years later, that dollar's still there? <laughs> because I had to give up. Anyway, so I'm a, so, but my point is, do you hear the point? Being, what makes it uniquely Christian? Is it really that Christians are more humble than everybody else in the world? Is it really that Christians are more, whatever, passionate about their faith than other people in the world? Or that other, Christians have these, real amazing experiences more than other people in the world? Anybody, you think? That's who your focus is on. Who's your... Who's All your right, so what are, you, what are you getting to? Let's go back to this one. What makes Christian uniquely Christian? 
Christian conversion uniquely Christian, according, and again, the quote should be helping you a little bit. Was it the third line that states what should happen? Is an objective reality conversion, a Christian conversion is something God chooses you, your, um, your whole identity changes. Your Good. Self, um, There's an objective reality. That was the key thing that you just said. What makes Christian conversion uniquely Christian is the content that we're converted to, the gospel. And the whole message of the gospel and the whole description of God, right? Did y'all come up with anything else like that? Yep. Anything you want to add to it? What I think the the last sentence stuck out to me the if then. Like if we attribute the gospel to some transformation of change and conversion, then that's what the rest of the world does. And which, you know, just backs up the second statement that says conversion has come to be understood in purely subjectivistic terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's that subjective versus objective that mm-hmm. it's not some story of what we say and, and, and profess of like what has happened in our life. That's what we're talking about, like, oh, it used to be this and be this. It's like something outside of ourselves that has descended upon us to bring us into conversion. Yeah. Okay. The second sentence I like, the, the divine origin supernatural change. Yeah. We can't will it. We can't will it. It, it, it and even the act of believing in this content, we can't right. will that. It has to be, it's a gift that comes. But there has to be a content that defines the nature of this conversion for it to be distinctively Christian is the point you're all making, right? Yeah. And then the other thing, the other thing, the other half of that is the internal results. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of transformations that occur that you transform back. You know, and can. So eventually, it's, time will tell. Yeah, this is right. Yeah, that's good. You know, I say this because remember we've talked at the beginning of this class a lot about the context that we're doing theology in, the context of modernity, and the context of what we call the you know the Cartesian Revolution. What what we did about how we know what we know. Remember, with the Cartesian Revolution, is that we we became subjectivistic. And then Kant later did his book on, remember all this? We talked about the critique of pure reason and Immanuel Kant. And in this critique of pure reason, there is no pure reason. There is no objective pure. Therefore, it becomes subjective pragmatism, what works for you. Now, why am I saying all that? Because evangelical, quote-unquote, I don't describe myself as evangelical anymore like that, but, but, but... evangelical or what we would describe as our church is, is somewhat you know gospel-centered, evangelical, whatever you want to call it, our, our hidden idol is subjectivism often. Now, how do you know that? Let's, let's say, give you an example. So someone is asked to give a testimony. You know, in other words, to give a testimony as to their conversion. What are they going to start talking about? What do you think? What are they going to start talking about? Me. Me? And my experience, you're going to probably tell me about all these events that led up to blank, and the blank happened, and all this experience, and then since then, this is how God's changed my life. Now, think about that. Think about that for me. I know I'm about to blow your bubble a little bit, but none of what they just said is unique to Christianity. I could, I could be a drug pusher and say most of it. Or I could be a Buddhist or a Hindu or anything else, and I could probably tell you how somehow there was some experience and this blank and this blank and this blank, and it changed my life and blah, 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 blah. And we've got a great conversion story that you could almost be identical 
you know, to the conversion story of a Christian. Now, some of you have become members, many of you here, obviously. Some of you recently. I can see a couple that I just met with. Um, and it's interesting if you met with, and I was one of those who met with you and listened to you and asked, okay. Oftentimes, in fact, it just happened to you guys, I think, this last week, right? Um, I'll say, well, well, tell me about your faith. And immediately, I remember, I think this happened with you guys, your wife, Rachel, said, well, you mean, tell me how I became a Christian? And do you remember what I said? You probably don't. You're probably too scared to remember, right? Um, I said, no, no, I'd like to hear you tell me what you believe as a Christian. Now, what was I doing? You know, now, I, I'm not saying there isn't a real story. But if I'm there trying, if I'm sitting there with you in a collaborative relationship with you, wanting to help you discern, hey, should I have assurance of faith? I'm not going to want to point you to a mountaintop experience. I'm not going to want to point you to um, this changed life necessarily. Think about how dangerous that would be. Because what happens when your life no longer feels changed? What happens when the experience is gone? You see? Because it will be gone. You know, it can't be sustained forever that you're on a mountaintop. And so that's why we're talking about conversion tonight. You know, what really is Christian conversion? And what does the church, having read Scripture for 2,000 years, form as a consensus about that? And it's going to come down to these two words, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And we're going to talk about that. So that was a great beginning. Now, you're blessed to have this next little thing. Now, if you, you have it, that's great. Because it's up here and it's kind of small, we're going to this letter. There's a letter that I came upon many, many, many years ago. Um, you need to understand that the letter is written to a man named R.L. Dabney. Anybody hear of R.L. Dabney? R.L. Dabney, um, uh, Martin Marty. Anybody hear of Martin Marty? He's a great theologian in the Chicago School of, of Divinity. Martin Marty is one of the, 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 the most respected academic. He's very, very liberal, um, you could say. He's, he would describe himself as a liberal theologian. Um, and he once said that R.L. Dabney is second only to Jonathan Edwards in terms of his uh, theological brilliance. And I say that because this is R.L. Dabney, a Presbyterian pastor, president of Union Seminary in the 19th century, and he is being encouraged in a very low time in his life. He just lost his wife. Um, he had suffered some depression. And he was in a very low place. And he was doubting himself, doubting his faith, doubting his relationship with God. He was in a very deep place. This is a, this is a guy that's written the, some of the most profound systematic theologies you've ever read. Big, big guy, very, very orthodox, very conservative, all that. So with that in mind, how would you counsel him? How would you say to him, um, how would you want to lead him back to that place of, of assurance of faith? How would you encourage him to grow in his faith? Listen to this letter by a fellow, a very dear friend and fellow pastor named, uh, I forgot his name, C.R. Vaughn. Okay, so I will read it for you because, or if somebody else can read it, that's fine too, but I have it here and I know it's small. You want me to just go ahead and read it and then I'm going to let you all talk about it? Okay. Dear R.L. Dabney, it's, it wasn't R.L. Dabney, he said, I forgot the name. <laughs> Yours of the 28th, just received. 
He's talking about a letter he received. Relieved attention of feeling which has held me painfully ever since Mrs. Dabney's last. She just died. I dreaded to hear, and then to hear you are in any degree better was an inexpressible comfort. It melted me to hear of your prayers for faith and dying grace. So here's a man who's so down, he's praying, God, I don't know that I have faith, and I want the grace to die. He's pretty low. The stress of such constant and severe bodily pain is enough of itself to to tempt you, and the tempter is sure to use it to affect your hope. Pray on, dear old soldier, of course, but listen to me a while. I want to give you a morsel of honey out of one of my dead lions. Remember uh, Samson and the lion? And the lion being the the enemy, the, the danger. So here's a man saying, hey, I've been there. I've done that. Um, let me let me give you some honey that a lesson that I've learned in my own depression, in my own struggle. Isn't this beautiful? So here he goes. Um, Though in fact there is a large herd of them still living, and so he's still being tempted. And they roar on me often till I am sick with fears. You want more faith? Do you remember in the stress of your trial how faith comes? Let me remind you although you know it. You know we are sanctified through the truth. Sanctification is just the growth of the particular graces of the Spirit of which faith is one. Just here is where Christians make a great mistake. When they want more faith or want to know whether the faith they have is the right sort of faith, instead of looking at the things to be believed, the objective, they turn their eyes inward and they scrutinize their faith. They want to see something in their faith to trust in, something that will certify their faith. Of course, self-examination is all right, but not when it practically substitutes faith for our Lord, grace, and righteousness. Think about that. Even a great theological thinker is apt to make that mistake when he has come into that practical stress of this awful world as a common Christian. (coughs) Now, suppose a traveler comes to a bridge. And he is in doubt about trusting himself to do it. What does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down and he examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridge head and turn his thoughts curiously on his own mind to see if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow? Why? In the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while. In other words, don't be so introspective. Don't be so Cartesian and examining yourself all the time. And you just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he is interested in the soul that searches for him. It will not be comforted until he finds him. Think of what he has done, his work. That blood of his is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that ever lived. Don't you think it will master yours? Think of his great righteousness. Will it not avail for all you hope to gain? That great work is enough. It needs not to be supplemented. It meets every demand. It warrants you to come into the king's very presence, assured of welcome, because you can come in the name of the king's son. Think of the master when you want your faith to grow. 
Now, dear old friend, I have done to you just what I would want you to do to me if I were in your place. The great theologian, after all, is just like any other one of God's children. And the simple gospel, talked simply to him, is just as essential to his comfort as it is to a milkmaid or to a plowboy. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ, and all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. I have been praying that God would quiet your pains as you advance and enable you to see the gladness of the gospel at every step. Goodbye. God be with you as he will. Think of the bridge. Isn't that just precious? But what, do you, what is he saying? Y'all just, let's talk. Let's do it together. What is, what's going on in this letter? What is the temptation that we have when we're struggling with faith or assurance? Doubt. Okay, it's doubt. And what are we tempted to do with that doubt? Well, we're not sure we believe it or not. You know, are you real? Okay, good. We're always looking inward. And we start to look inward. Right. We start to examine my faith. Faith is not it, anything. Faith is, he called it, the, what do you call it, the vehicle or the... The eyes through which we see, it's, 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 it's not what we see, faith, it's the eyes to see what we see and to believe. And so, yeah, it, do y'all find that to be true? Yes. Yeah. You're going through a hard time, you're going through something, it's depressing, whatever it is, and you start examining yourself. And it might be, I lack passion. You're examining yourself. You never did put your faith in your passion, did you? I lack energy. I lack motivation. I lack uh, conquering this sin. I lack... And you're, what are you doing? It's all about you. You're judging yourself. Yes. It's all about you. Did you... Is that how... You know, you can hear... Is that what saved you? Did, did, did you come into this thing by believing in you? Is that what this is about? Believing in me? And so when I doubt my faith, I start examining me some more. That's, that's not Christian conversion. That's the absolute opposite of Christian conversion. What makes Christian conversion so unique is that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Faith itself, not as a work, but a free gift of the God. It's the eyes to see and to believe that which is not that which is outside of me done for me and promised to me by faith alone. So examine the bridge. Examine Christ. Is he worthy of my confidence? Is he worthy of my trust? If And for me, this letter's had a huge impact on my life. You know, I've used it in every course. I've been teaching this thing now for 20-something 20, years, and I use it every time, and it's a very powerful letter for me because for me, I come to those moments, and I think, God, really? How do I really know? Well, you... you the promise of Christ. He said, knock, and it'll be open. Seek. Did you hear any qualification? Did you hear any nuance? Did any equivocation? It's just that plain. You know, I am looking. I'm knocking. All right. Now, is the one I'm knocking, is he worthy to believe in him? Let me remember who he is. Let me examine the Christ, and he is worthy, and he has promised. It's so. 
So whether I feel it or not. So therefore, I have a little suspicion about the way we do modern day testimonials. You know, and if you have joined or if you haven't joined, you're about to join. I know you, you know, we did the same thing with you. Remember, in fact, that, I think you did. You're, you, I'll tell you how. I, I think we started off the track of sort of how you became a Christian, right? And I think it was you, I think it was you that I kind of stepped back and I said, well, no, no, just tell me what you believe. Because that's the, I'm, I'm making a signal every time you join this church when I do that. That's what your hope is in. Your story, there are a thousand different stories. They're all beautiful but they're not what, you say, what saves you. What do y'all think of this? I, I said more than that. I, was, I meant to let you talk more about this. Yeah, well, what hit me is we've just walked through this yeah. with Dan's death. Yeah. And God has been so gracious mm-hmm. that I just, I'm overwhelmed by it. Mm-hmm. And we see God's hand in so many places. Mm-hmm. And it's just made me grateful mm-hmm. that he is who he is. Mm-hmm. Amen. Other thoughts? We're doing a Bible study Wednesday mornings, and uh, t- today we're in uh, John chapter <clears throat> 14. And as we were going through that, it struck me, uh, I didn't count them, I wish I had, but the number of times that the word believe is used in that chapter, and the word know, and that's what come together. you're talking about. Yeah, and it's the things that we know uh, about God is revealed in the in the Bible that are the important things to grab onto uh, here because they're things that we don't see in our working in our circumstances but yet if we have the ability to hang on to the things that we know uh, through what he's revealed to us that makes a huge difference anybody else? that's good yeah oh I'm sorry I thought you anybody else? I was just thinking also because we in our morning Bible study were doing Psalm 73, which is a beautiful song. And um, part of it that provided incredible comfort for me is that I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Good. Amen. Yeah. Got three of you back here. Whoever wants to go first. Go ahead, Rob. So I was just going to say another thing we talk with people about at membership interviews is when you go to take the Lord's Supper, who do you examine? Do you examine your own faith? And if your faith is insufficient, you should not partake. Or do you examine Christ? Mm -hmm. Because if you're examining your own faith, it's always going to be deficient. You'll never... You know, right. never participate. It's about Christ and His work, so it's a similar concept. That's right. It's very important. We this Cartesian revolution, this Kantian, you know, critique of we we've really got a. This is a major issue in this course that we keep review going back to. That we live in a world where Christianity has been syncretized with a lot of Enlightenment ideas, some of which are good. I think the rediscovery of individual was good. But but there's a lot in there that's very infectious, very disease-ish, you know, when it comes to faith, toxic. And one of those is that, that Christianity became very subjectivistic, very feeling-oriented or behavior-oriented. 
And when we even read the Bible, when it says, I'm, you know, praying for faith, you know, what is faith? It's not a subjective feeling. It's, it's seeing a, a body content of promises given to us by God, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as sufficient for me to base my life on. That's what faith is. And while we all have experiences that can bring, that can come and go, honestly, you know, I've been a Christian now for 30-something years, and there have been some real highs, and there have been some real lows, and, and the worst of all, there have been times of just silence. Lows are better than silence. Just, just nothing, you know? And yet, God is in all of that. You know? I, I think there was a couple others back there. Did you want to get in there? Who was it? Well, I, I was just the observation of, like, how, like, how continual it is, you know, that, you know, faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and how that comes that every day. Like, hearing the Word of God. As, and it's a, a practice of examining God and who He is. Yes. You know, and I think back a year ago when mm-hmm. I first attended a men's Bible study, we were talking about that in James, um, about how, like, every day you got to wake up and actually, like, re-examine. It's repentance and faith every day. You, you come in by repentance of faith, you continue by repentance and of faith. And if we don't continue to do that, we're fooling ourselves because good. we're relying, we're coming back, we're relying on our own. That's right. Amen. Good, good point. Very good. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead. Um, as very few, my name is Rico, and I've, I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I know, like even here, where he's talking about in James 2, it says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. When um, the scriptures was fulfilled, that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called, called God's friend. And um, with this letter and stuff, I'm in that that deep pit right now because I even came here in, in a multi-crisis situation. I left my home because my roommate had been threatening me. He doesn't know the Lord. And I, it was like, even from there, I was like, when do I leave? How often do I show the forgiveness and love and, you know, hoping that he would get to know the Lord? I've been dealing with cancer. Um, I go to Smilo. And... This whole year, you know, trying to figure out money situation. My body used car in in June. The next day, the head gaskets blew, and I'm now at a crisis center. And I was let go on Monday. They didn't even give me a 24-hour notice. So I I had thoughts of suicide. And I mean, I know Scripture and I know the Lord, and the Lord knows me. And it's like I believe, I know, and I know that Joseph, I know, and I ended up calling at the observation unit because I was like, you know what? I need time to relax. I'm not going to go jump off a bridge or slice my throat, but that was the thoughts that kept on coming in my head And um, on Monday night. And it sucked. And it's just like, okay, what do I do? And then Tuesday, I, I'm like, I want to write my goodbye and maybe write a great goodbye. And I'm like, I can't think like that. I know suicide is murder. And I, I know that. And I, I know the Lord. And so what's been great, too, I've been listening to Caleb a lot this year. And um, there's been times that I've called in for prayer because it's just been one rough 
situation after another. Tell me how this, this letter affects you. How I'm wondering, but to the point was, is when the when I spoke to two points. One, he said, when Peter walked in water, um, he he got distracted when he was looking around away and looking towards Christ. That's one thing that connected. The other part was when the pastor I was speaking to said, you know, ask God. Like he was telling me all the stuff that I know, and he's like, well, ask God how God can use you and where you're at. And that kind of woke me yeah, up yeah, out of my situation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that James passage, um, it's confused a lot of people when they've read that. And I think it's important in the conversation to hear what you read because, if, did you hear it carefully? Faith is distinguished from works. What James is saying is not you know your faith by your works. It's that you know that, that true faith always has works. But there's a difference there. Yep. So there's a, there's a phrase that, that came out of the Reformation. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But faith is never alone. In other words, don't confuse the fact that, that works follow faith. Because faith is believing in God applied to life. So I believe God's word. He says not to do this or to do this. Therefore, I believe I'll do it. And so works comes by faith. But don't confuse sanctifying faith. We're going to talk about this later. Sanctifying faith from what we call justifying faith. Justifying faith is believing in a body content that Christ himself is the object and what he has accomplished for our salvation. That's the base of our assurance. Sanctifying faith is taking the same thing that believed on Christ for my justification and now believing on Christ for my, what we call sanctification or the way I live my life. And yes, we have to repent every day for lack of faith and believe again in the gospel that's free. So if you're out there struggling with assurance... What this letter tells you to not do is examine your faith. What this letter tells you not to do is examine your passions and your feelings, not even your behavior. Don't read James and anything he said that would make you compromise that. Rather, it's saying, study Christ, his behavior, his performance. Is it sufficient to substitute for you in this judgment of God so that you can be assured that you're a child of God? Yes, it does, if only you want it. It's that simple. Not, it'll be given to you. Do you want it? You got it. That's saving faith. And then, of course, that same impulse will then continue in your life in the way that we try to obey them. But our faith will sometimes be weak and strong, and our assurance is not based on how strong and weak our faith is at a given time. So that's very, very, very important. Well, let's, let's go on. Thank you all for that. Um, we, don't, we have some good things to talk about, but let's, let's open up in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for, wow, to, to, to read a very intimate letter between two very intimate friends that happened over 150 years ago and to find it so relevant today. So, Father, as those of us, many training to be teachers of our children and, and of this church and Bible study leaders, all of us here as children trying to understand you and understand our faith, what we believe, I pray you'll help us today as we think about conversion what makes Christian conversion uniquely Christian and, and how we can uh, ourselves both experience the, the grace of assurance and to help others as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's turn to the uh, handout, if you haven't already. Um, 
And uh, we're, we're here looking at, in our confession, uh, what's, what's described as saving faith. We started that last week, as you remember. or la- Yeah, it was last week, wasn't it? I feel like I've been, no, it was two weeks ago. Um, and just, just notice how, how it, uh, it, it, it reads. What is faith? Someone read that, number one. Anybody got it? Can you see it? Make as big as you can there. But that's pretty big, yeah. Anybody want to try to read that? Yeah. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased and strengthened. Okay, number two, somebody? By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Now, I would love for you to, by the way, if you had a hard copy here, to circle those three words. What was faith? Accepting, receiving, and resting. Uh, Some versions will say assenting or accepting. Um, And then uh, notice number three, which is very helpful. Someone read it. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often in many ways assailed, weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Isn't that encouraging? So it's the nature of true and saving faith that it'll be weak sometimes. And the old adage, of course, it's not how... It's not how strongly you believe, it's what you believe in that makes the difference. Um, repentance. Now, we're going to talk more. Let's, let's go back to repentance when we get to the second half because uh, I want to really make sure we focus on a few things. Repentance, I think, is one of the more misunderstood uh, ideas, and we'll have to talk about that. But let's just go, and um, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to hope that many of you are familiar with it, but you're familiar with the great conversion of Pentecost, chapter 2. The coming of the Holy Spirit, and it says many believed. And I think oftentimes, um, you know, what do we learn from that experience? And um, what was the context? What was happening there? How does someone, in a, other words, get, how is faith born? Um, and notice this interesting comment by George Limbeck um, as he's reflecting on the early church and the way that conversions ordinarily happened. He says, pagan converts to the Christian mainstream did not, for the most part, first understand the faith and then decide to become Christians. Rather, the process was reversed. They first decided and then they understood. Does that sound familiar? More precisely, they were first attracted by the Christian community and the form of life. They submitted themselves to prolonged catechetical instruction in which they practiced new modes of behavior and learned the stories of Israel and their fulfillment in Christ. Only after they had acquired proficiency in the alien, this, this, this world that was alien to them before, 
Christian language and form of life were they deemed able, intelligently and responsibly to profess faith and to be baptized. Now, what, what's going on there? This kind of turns upside down. Remember, he's talking about a world that did not have cultural Christianity in it, what we call Christendom. He's talking about a, a, the way people come to faith when they, it is truly a absolutely alien concept to their ordinarily way of life. Uh, another word that, that, that you might distinguish here, um, sociologists distinguish between the words credibility and plausibility. You know the difference? Credibility is something that you can test with a re- by reason. It's something that, that you can, um, it's reasonable. You can, it's, they're points that can be argued and made, etc. It's credible. You can study it, right? Um, plausibility is it feels right or it, I want it to be right. Um, it's the difference between people who believe things because everybody else believes it See, when everybody around me believes it, when the whole world is structured in a manner to believe something, it's all based on. So we live in a world, again, post-enlightenment, we call it, uh, you know, in a context that's democratized. Democratization. What is the fundamental assumption of democratization? Truth, wisdom, is commonsensical. That is to say, if you want to know truth, if you want to know wisdom, take a poll. Usually 51% is right. Now, how does that fit to the worldview of the scripture? You ever heard that little thing about narrow is the road? You know, few enter into it. The fact of the matter is, the most common word to describe the true faithful in the Old and New Testament is a word, in the Old Testament, the word is remnant. It's, it's, a, it's a subset. You know? And Peter, it's the resident alien, someone that feels like a fool in the world. And so you see how amazing plausibility is. You live and breathe in a world. If your world is informed by Christian worldview and values, it's, gonna become, it, it's the kind of world where now you already have the plausibility. This is really crucial if you're interested in evangelism. You already have the plausibility structure, we call it. Everything around me makes Christianity feel right. I was just in the South for a week. And I, I mean, literally, I cannot tell you how many places I went and people behind me were praying. You know, every dinner, I mean, there was the family holding hands. You, you do know the, the little evangelical squeeze, right? We, we got around a table, you know, with, you know, we all hold hands, you know. And after you pray, what do you got to do? Oh, it's the evangelical squeeze. Uh, uh, oh, we love each other. Uh, uh. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Is that not done anymore? <laughs> well, there's this little pious squeeze. If I were to pray with you, would you squeeze my hand at the end of it, Sarah? I bet you would. That's a crew thing, isn't it? I don't know. Well, you see the world, though? The world says, ah. Oh, it just the way of life, the way of conversation, the worldview, what, what you do, how you live your ebb and flow of life, there's just a whole lot of Christianity informing that. Plausibility structure. So therefore, we tend to think of conversion as starting with what here it ended with. We think of conversion in a Christendom world as sort of, oh, so 
what's the first step? Hey, would you like to come to a Christian uh, 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 investigative Bible study and investigate the claims of Christ? Would you like to come to this special event that's coming up? You know, how I was saved is, is, is literally going to a revival of Charles Stanley in downtown Atlanta 30 years ago after a friend of mine asked me about 100 times to come to Young Life, and I'd gone to one, and the whole world around me felt Christian, and finally I just said, yeah, I need to go hear this, because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But it was plausible. I was ready. Now, what happens? Imagine for a moment a world. You know I'm about to do a little trick on you, right? Imagine a world where there is no plausibility. How does a person become a Christian? Are they going to start with, I'm interested in discerning the tenets of the Christian faith. I'd like to go to an evangelistic Bible study. This is something we're learning right now in our church. We kind of pushed something on you, and you all said no. Well, now I'm reflecting on my theology. Going, well, of course. We don't live in Christendom anymore. You don't start with a polished Bible study. There's going to have to be a lot more individual communalization and socialization going on where people experience it. And then they say, I like this. I believe this. Now explain why I believe this. <laughs> and that's, what was, that's, what he's, that's how the early church was saved. People were participating in the community of Christ before they were Christians. They were sitting there experiencing sacrament. I mean, think about that worship service in Acts, right? What would you say? They were all there together. And what were these nations doing? They were sitting in the middle of an assembly of thousands of people evidently practicing communion, praying, singing. And we Christendom-oriented Christians think that's not evangelistic. Really? That's very evangelistic. But it's probably going to be preceded by a lot of people communicating with people individually, life on life, beers and coffees. And it's really going to come, I mean, you are becoming much more important than you would have been in, in Georgia. What you are doing every day is something that has to happen so that they begin to get the plausibility for it. And that's just some, so I'm asking the question, what is conversion and how are we converted? You heard the scripture. It's clearly going to be at some point, there's going to have to be a body content that you will assent to. So you you get faith by hearing the word of God, right? There's got to be word. But you noticed in our, even in our confession, it said also the sacraments and prayer. You see in Acts, the community and how powerful the community was and building that plausibility. What do you all think about this? Is this kind of a paradigm shift for you? So how do we do evangelism? We need to get we need to find a way for the world that we live in to have access to the community of the body of Christ in our own selves individually, but also in our families and places like scotch clubs, etc. Our neighborhoods. Our neighborhoods. Yeah. We really got to start thinking about this. You know, um, who was it just the other day was talking about something. Oh yeah. We had a wonderful time in here yesterday. Our, monthly MA church planner um, collaborative and uh, we were talking about some things and this guy was talking about what are we doing right now to, to try to reach your neighborhoods and you know he's he's had he's got a little fire pit and he and you know so he does a fire pit every uh, every I think it's Friday night he just does the fire pit out in his front yard and says everybody come on over and have a fire pit with me and the neighborhood's starting to have a fire pit party almost every Friday night during the summer that's that's plausibility building and one day they may say well I notice you're odd. I notice that you're alien. I notice that you do live life a little differently, but it's, 
It's strangely very attractive to me. Can you tell me something about what you believe? See, just being in the community doesn't make him a Christian, though. He's got to have a body content. Addition. By so body content, you mean set of truths yes. that you believe? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I mean. Listen to this. This is Alistair McGrath. McGrath. Now, remember, he's speaking now in a context that's increasingly familiar to us in New England. He's, he's speaking in Britain. They're about 80 years ahead of us in post-Christendom in terms of a culture that's going away from Christianity, right? And here's what he says. He's describing Blase Pascal, you know, who, the scientist, and C.S. Lewis, and he says, for Pascal, there was little point in trying to persuade anyone of the truth of religious belief. The important thing, he argued, was to make people wish that it was true. Having caught sight of the rich and satisfying vision of reality it offered, once such a desire was implanted within the human heart, the human mind would eventually catch up with its deeper intuitions. Isn't that interesting? We're returning to the first century and the way people become Christians. Have you ever read anybody? I would encourage you, if you haven't, to read Augustine's uh, Confessions. It is the mo- one of the most profound. Now, it, it's pretty legalistic. I mean, this guy was basically a sex addict. I mean, no, I mean, I'm not exactly. He was a sex addict. Today, he would be classified as a sex addict. Um, he was also a few other addicts. And so you don't be, if you do read it, take that in consideration because he will come to a position of a lot of things that's, that's absolute abstinence kind of, of, of a, an approach. But, but listen to his story. It, it, started, it, it would mimic this perfectly. But he didn't ever finally get his assurance until he was baptized. That is, he had been catechized to the Christian faith. That's all catechism is, is taught the body content. And he could believe in it, profess it, and be baptized as an adult uh, who had never been baptized before, of course. And uh, that's when the burden was dropped. That's chapter 9, I believe. But when I grew up as an evangelical, when I became a Christian, I always learned that he became a Christian in chapter 8. That's where he first encountered uh, the Word of God. And he became a moralist. He basically became a Christian ethicist. But he hadn't really experienced the gospel yet. So that would be a good story for you if you want to read it. Um, any questions about this so far? I'm going to move on here, and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to kind of pick a few things that are very, very important. So we, we've talked about number three there. You see uh, chapter 15, Saving Faith. Notice 14.1, what are the three ordinary means by which God works saving faith in people? We just, that's what we just talked about. It's going to be more than just a Bible study, though. It's the community. It's the sacraments. It's the prayers. It's worship. Don't underestimate the power. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sorry. One more statement about this. I, most times when people are really unbelievers, they're not a, they, they, they don't take offense at anything we do in our worship service. They, they come expecting it to be alien. They come expecting it to be weird. And that's exactly what they're looking for. I want a, another world experience if I'm coming to church. It's the people who come from Christendom that are usually offended if it's not short enough, if it's not emotional enough, if it's not a lot of other stuff. It's very interesting about that. Don't diminish the power of, of, of corporate worship as a means of grace for people to come to faith. But also don't diminish the community. We've already talked about all that. So num- number two, what is saving faith? Notice then um, the way question 72 says it. What is justifying faith? This is, a, this is the question-answer version of that, what we just read in, in the Westminster. A justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery 
and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition. That is, they, he, 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 he hits the bottom. Everyone's got to hit the bottom, you know. We've got to come to the point where we despair of our power. We don't have the power. I can't get that. There's got to be that. Somewhere, somehow, it can happen subtly, it can happen abruptly, but somewhere, somehow, we get in touch with the brokenness of our life in light of our sin. And then it goes on, not only, and, and then what is it? And all of the creatures, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, body content, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ as his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteousness in the sight of God for salvation. Notice there's nothing about that that, ex- that would make me, if I want to know if I'm a Christian, examine myself. Is there? The only thing I could examine or guess about myself is, do I understand the gospel and do I want it? That's it. That's what faith is. Because God does the rest. He gave you that even. He did it all. Not the, He did it for everything. If you're there, if someone comes to me, Pastor, I'm worried that I believe, I'm saying, good news, you wouldn't be here. Because <laughs> you're wanting it. Want, a desire for it. Knock is the evidence of faith. Now, it's faith wanting content. It's faith wanting what to believe, right? But, but that impulse, I believe, is the impulse of the Holy Spirit. If you're here asking, you don't get that. That's not what sinners do by nature. I think, you know, you've heard me tell this. I don't, most of you weren't at the funeral I did a couple of weeks ago, but, but um, you've heard about Fred's conversion, uh, Lillian's uncle. And, uh, you know, he asked me after, I think some of you, well, you were there, so you heard, so I know you've heard this, but no one else. But here's a man in his late years who, who never was interested in Christ at all. And, and, the, and Joe and Lillian said, Preston, you know, they wanted me to do the funeral. I said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm through doing hypocritical things. You know, I'm not going to do a, a funeral, a Christian funeral and pretend like something that's not there. And I wasn't that harsh. That sounds harsh. I love them and I love this family. But it was more of a, I'm struggling, you know. I, I don't want to just play this game. It just diminishes the church when we get suckered into being used like that. So there's a sense of me which I said, I would do it under one condition, that he's willing to meet with me and talk about his relationship with God. That was my condition. And Lillian's, oh, you know, in her cute little way, no, opera, I don't think he'll ever do that. I, I could ask, but he's never been interested. He's always said he doesn't like talking about it. It's just, no, I really don't think you. And Joe comes in, Preston, really? I, really, you got to do Yeah, Joe, I'm, I need to at least talk to him. He's got to be willing to talk to me about his relationship with Christ or about the relationship with God. So they went to him and they said, he said he'll do it, but he's going to come and talk to you about your relationship with God. Well, are you willing to do that? And to their great surprise, they, he said, yeah. So I go, and I won't tell you the whole story. We don't have enough time. Um, the, I knew within about five minutes I was on sacred ground. I remember the thought hit me. I'm on sacred ground here. This man has confronted his death. Death has a way of making you honest. All this sentimental philosophy that you hold, it just doesn't carry the weight of my God. He was wanting to talk. And we talked for about an hour and a half. He prayed to receive Christ genuinely. It was amazing. Lots of good questions, blah, 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 blah. I was getting up, looking at my clock, being a little professional pastor, ready to get out of the room. He said, hold on, I have one more question for you. And he says, how do I know that I'm sincere? Mm-hmm. Now, that question was really powerful to me. That is the, that's the question of a genuine faith. I believe, how do I know I believe? I really need to get this settled. And he goes, so honest. Wouldn't anybody in my condition pray to do this? 
And that's when I gave him, the, of course, the three crosses. I said, no, actually, death can have just the opposite effect. It can dig your heels in, and you can just say, I'm, I'm not going to think about it. And I gave him the example of the man on the left who rejected Christ on his last breath and the man on the right who received Christ on his last breath, right? And um, this is evidence of what I'm saying. If someone's in your life saying, I want to know more about this, that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It starts with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't start with a dead person. You remember he's spirits. Remember all that stuff about sin? He's dead. Can't start with him. Now, you, you just became a, quote, predestinarian or whatever you want to call it. I hate those words. But you just became a person who believed in the sovereignty of God if you believe that we are dead in our trespasses. That means you don't have the power to will it. You're dead. So here's a person in my study saying, I'm struggling with my assurance. Do I have it? I'm going to say, you're struggling with your assurance? You got it. Now, I won't be quite so brass. What do y'all think of that? That's what we just read. That's what our church has believed for 2,000 years. That's the consensus of what the scriptures principally teach. It's a work of the Spirit wrought in the heart, the evidence of which is that we assenteth, we receiveth, and we resteth in the gospel, that, those promises of God to us. It's not, I believe in myself. It's not that I feel it, that I experience it, that I had a mountaintop experience. All that stuff comes and goes. I had a, one more thing. I had one person tell me when I first became a Christian, because I was struggling. I had the same kind of question with, I really did. I had the same question as Fred now. I'm looking at. It's just the first time I even thought about that. But I remember thinking, God, I don't know if this is, how do I know this is true? How do I know I mean it? How do I know I'm not just doing this because, you know, I'm, I'm screwed up right now or something? You know, the Freudian crutch thing. Um, and somebody said, well, I'll tell you what, dude, just write in your Bible today. And every time you doubt, remember today that you received Christ. Is that good advice? Yep. Be careful. Think about what I'm doing. I'm examining myself and what I did. And I knew the second he said it. I mean, I have a brain here. It's like, you're missing my point. That's my point. I'm doubting whether I was sincere. Why are you telling me to remember the day that I received Christ when I don't even know if I'm sincere when the day that I received Christ? What I wished he had done, and later someone told me, which finally set me free, well, he said, Preston, let's go to the scripture. What does the scripture teach? Do you, do, you see your, do you want this? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Heck yeah. Man, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of the tracks, man. I mean, I, I really got saved. Seriously saved. I was going that way. I mean, I was truly saved. You know? And he says, okay, so you see yourself as a sinner? Do you believe what this says about Jesus and what he did for you? Do you believe it? Well, I don't know, but I want to believe it. Oh, you want to believe it, do you? Well, let's go to that passage I just gave you. Not... Seek. You're knocking? Yep. You're seeking? Yep. It's done. And that freed me up. The promises of Scripture is what gave me assurance, not examining myself or whatever experience I made. That's the essence of what saving faith is. I want to get that through. Do you have questions? There's a lot more here, and we're going to look at it, but, but real quickly, I want to make sure that comes through. I think one thing that I, like, I might right now is the knee or the seeking and the knocking and it's like what's your and my husband says what's your heart disposition toward it so if you're knocking but the whole time you're like I don't want somebody to come to the door like I don't want him you know but if your heart is like I really want him to be 
like to come to the door and to be who I see him as in scripture. There's definitely like a difference <coughs> there. And so you raise a good question. Are there spurious conversions? Are there are there those who say Lord, Lord, but really don't mean Lord, Lord, and therefore are not saved? Yeah. Is that your question? Yeah, more just like an observation. Yeah. Other people have been have thought about saying. Yeah. That's a very good question. We need to talk about that. How would you know the difference? Anybody, what, is our, what does our confession, at least, reading Scripture, tell us? Do you perceive your sin and that you are in need of, of a Savior? See, that's why repentance and faith is so important. But be careful. Repentance is not good works. We have two chapters in the, the, the confession. Most historic creeds do. Repentance is not the same chapter as good works. Again, most pious Christians confuse the two. They think repentance is good works. No, repentance is, well, let's look at that. So can we map those on to Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord? Well, he's Lord in your salvation, isn't he? Yeah, but like seeing him as such? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist that only because the, the first creed of Christians was the creed, Jesus is Lord. And what they meant by that is Lord over my salvation in a holistic, full sense. Lord over my justification. Lord over my salvation. Jesus Christ is the answer to all life's problems kind of Lord. So I don't want to dichotomize lordship from saviorship or something like that. Now, I know what you mean because that's common in evangelical parlance to distinguish between, you know, Christ my savior, Christ my Lord. But I think it's a non-biblical I wouldn't put that biblically. Lord means truly Yahweh. That's the word in Greek that's translated for Yahweh. It's the sovereign one. The sovereign one who from beginning to end saves us. From election to regeneration to giving us saving faith and repentance to justification, sanctification, glorification. The whole bit, it's the Lord over that whole thing. So can I add a a, different situation into reading Mm -hmm. 15? Like, I was talking to a girl yesterday who was like, okay, I agree that God, you know, created and loves each of us, that mankind is sinful, and that Jesus is the only remedy for that, but I don't really feel like my sins are enough to need it, even though I get the doctrine of humanity being sinful. I also, like, kind of feel like sharing control of my life with him, Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. letting him be totally... Praise God for that honesty. I like this person already. well, um, the fact that they're talking to you, I would internally say I'm like, I know the, there. the spirit is working in this person's life. They're trying to figure, they've got great questions. I believe, help me in my unbelief kinds of questions as you and I've talked about earlier today. And they have a problem with the doctrine of original sin. They need some good doctrine. I would say, hey, let's, let's distinguish something here. Um, there is actual sins. Sin with a small s, drinking, smoking, blah, 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 which neither of those are sins, by the way, but I was taught that when I first became a Christian. But I do both um, sometimes in moderation, I promise. Good cigars only. All right. Um, but so there's, there's, you know, sins with a small s, all those manifestations of what? Original sin. What is original sin? Big S. The original sin is rejecting the lordship of God in my life. The rejecting God as my creator and my, my source of life. It's the sin of rejecting God. It's the sin, 
It's the impardonable sin of rejecting God, albeit God who comes in the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. So what is the unpardonable sin? The one sin that can't be forgiven? Rejecting God. That's the unpardonable sin. To reject God is to reject the source of life, and therefore I bring upon myself death. Death. God doesn't kill me. I kill myself. That's the curse. I, I separated myself from the milk of life. I'm, I'm, I starve. Or whatever. I, I, I lose breath. I have no air. Everything, life, breathed. I, I separated myself. That's original sin. So what I say, help this person, first of all, is distinguish that. I say, hey, do you believe that you, and this is the question I asked Fred, you know, when we talked about how, I don't, how do I know what I said. Well, I asked Fred, I mean, he wouldn't mind me saying this because I had him give testimony. I said, Fred, if you love the Lord, I mean, if the Lord is the Lord, if God is God, who gives you all things to enjoy and everything that you've loved about your life, he's a mechanic, all this stuff, everything, everything, it was the Lord who gave you. Do you feel that would be worthy of your ultimate love, if that's true? That you owe everything, even the breath that you breathe in the years that you've lived to God? I said, have you loved the Lord your Lord, God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And he, he, he chuckled. He says, I've never sought after the Lord. No. It was a simple no. I've never sought after the Lord. That's never something I've done. Oh, that was such good news. Because he understood original sin. We weren't getting into all the, the, the minor conversations about actual sins. So he knew he had rejected God all his life. That's where you got to get people. Part one. And part two is, well, God never rejected you. And, he, and there's always been a way back to him and live. And, and life would be restored. And thus the gospel. Right? So that's the first thing. I can't remember the second part. Did I get both parts? Yeah, so it's the control thing. And she's confessing as much. If she's confessing as much, say good news. That's what we all struggle with. <laughs> Rejecting God. And you need a savior because God, I, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. There, there you're in Romans 7, right? And you know, I, can't, I just can't get beyond this. I keep rejecting God. Yep, you do. And you're going to keep doing it for the rest of your life. Though you hope to be sanctified in it more and more and more. But ironically, let me warn you, the more you're sanctified, the more you see his holiness, the more you see his goodness, the more you see his holy law, the further you're going to feel like you are from holiness. I mean, when I first became a Christian, I'm giving this real personal, I don't know if we're doing this, but, but I mean, for me, it was truly an alcohol issue. It, the Lord had my conscience on alcohol. So when I first became a Christian, you know, I was, I was on my way to being an alcoholic at the age of 16, no doubt. I'd first gotten drunk at the age of 12, and I was just going at it. And somewhere around that senior year of, of high school when I was starting to get convicted of this, I had a bottle of Black Jack under my, my car seat. I was an expert at throwing things over my car and hitting signs. And I shouldn't be telling you that. It's not a good thing to do. But um, I'll never forget the day after I got converted, um, the Lord put his finger on that Black Jack. He said, you know what? You're not going to drink anymore. And I remember taking that Black Jack out and throwing it on the stop sign. <laughs> And that was it for about 15, 20 years. And um, what's interesting about that is that was a, a, an actual sin, but it was symbolic of the, of the ultimate problem, which is real sin, which is the original sin. You know, and so that's, that's the kind of stuff you're doing with this girl right there. She just needs some good doctrine, I think, and then the heart to believe it, which God will give. 
Other questions? Saving faith. Do we still feel like we know what it is? And I will ask, and you don't need to answer, but do you have it? Do you have it? Have you put your faith, not in your faith, but in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's all. It's that radically simple. I mean, it's so simple. There's a guy that worships with us. He's now pretty quiet. He was married to a woman that got killed. What's his name? I'm just blanking. Oh, gosh. He sits over there in the right corner. He leaves halfway through the service almost every week. What is it? Bob. Thank you. But when Bob became a Christian, um, we were sitting up there doing marriage. He, he, he was a couple that was walking down the street, and they saw a church. They wanted to get married, and they walk in. Would you marry us? Here again, I put a little conditional. Yeah, I will, but I'm going to need to do marriage counseling with you, and, and we're going to talk about marriage as it reflects a relationship with God through Christ. All right, well, we could do that. He had no idea what to get into, right? But <laughs> he did. And I would say four, three or four sessions into it, um, he, we were really talking about the gospel, and he looked at me with the most sincere eyes in the world. He said, that's too good to be true. Now, I mean, that's the kind of stuff you, you read about, you know, somebody saying. He said it, and he didn't even know it was, it was cliche. That's just too good to be true. I'm telling you, if that's not what you understand, you don't know the gospel yet. If you don't have that, that's just too good to be true sensation, I don't know that you know the gospel yet. That's the way the gospel is. It's just too good to be true. It's that easy. It's that simple. No conditions put. Wow. This is fun. I really am having fun. Y'all having fun? Y'all want to talk about repentance? We have a couple minutes left. I said, let's, let's go back to that repentance. Let's go back and read it. And this is really going to be sticky. Someone read one. Repentance on to life is evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. So notice of evangelical grace, that's just language for Holy Spirit given. That, the, the word evangelical here is in the classic use of that word, um, and it's the idea that it's a spirit-filled, it's, a, it's something that can only be spiritually praised. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians what, 3. So evangelical grace, first of all, it's not a work. That's the key, though. It's not a work. So the moment you start thinking of repentance like works, something I got to do and I got to put, you know, you've missed the whole point already. You had not even gotten through the first phrase. Repentance is not a work. We have a whole chapter on good works in our confession. We'll talk about it later. This is not a work. I have, I hear so many people, haven't you? We got to repent. And I hear the old cliche. Well, what does it mean to repent? To turn. Oh, you know, the arrow and all. I've heard them. Turn, what does that mean? And almost immediately it means what? You got to stop sinning. Well, crap. I just got another dollar on the thing. I haven't stopped sinning yet. Well, you know, and here comes the pious evangelical. Well, you know, I mean generally. Well, how much generally? When, when does the general stop and the specific begin? I don't know. What does that mean? Well, you know, you just need to... I, I talked to a great theologian. I won't mention his name. You would all know him. A very great theologian who's done some great work, but I think has, has sort of moved away from the doctrine of justification. And I at a conference sat down right in front of him and said, Blank, what would you say to someone who walks in your office and says, I'm struggling with assurance? And this person said, well, I would ask them, do you love, your na- do you love the Lord and do you love your neighbor? 
breath away. Now, I think he meant that some kind of a heart disposition or something. But man, if you're Luther, that's going to screw you. Luther was a very sincere man. We need a few more of them in the world. Luther took it seriously. So much so that he starts trembling when he comes to administer the Lord's table because he didn't love the Lord. And, he knew it. and that's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? That we all don't love the Lord. Wasn't that the point of the rich young ruler who came and said, Lord, guess what? I've kept the law. I've, and what is the summary of the law, remember? The Shua. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, straight. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've kept the law. Jesus, brilliantly, of course, turns says, really? So have you sold everything you own and given it to the poor? What was he doing? Really? You've loved the Lord and your neighbor as yourself? Really? Yourself? Really? And you have all this wealth? I mean, let's just admit it. I don't love you very much. Preston Graham does not love you very much. There are people in this room that have things that I could provide right now if I were willing to give up some of my wealth. That is a very humbling, awful thought. I need to get better. Pray for me. I could live on a third of what I'm living on. I could live on a twentieth of what I'm living on. And there, I could probably deal with all the problems in this congregation in a minimal way if I just give up my 80% of my wealth. I could do that myself. I'm getting really, you're getting nervous, aren't you? This is getting a little too honest. It's the dang truth. I don't love you the way Jesus loves you. We didn't even have a place to put his head. I just don't. I don't love you that much. Pray for him. That man walked away sad, the way you're feeling right now. And the disciples came to Jesus and he said, Lord, come on, man. This is impossible. Seriously? Seriously? Can you hear those disciples read between the lines there? Are you joking me, man? That's what it takes? And do you all remember what he said? With man, yep. it's impossible with God. What is impossible with man is not impossible with God. That's too good to be true. You mean God's going to do this for me? Hey, who do you think I am? I'm doing it for you right now. Too good to be true. So do not confuse repentance in such a way as to annul the very meaning of grace and the very meaning of everything Jesus did for us. And that's why when you come to the Lord's table, as Rob beautifully said, you don't come to the Lord's table and start thinking, do I love the Lord your God with all my heart and strength as a basis for when I can partake of the table? No, take of the table because you discern you don't and you really need grace. And that grace might motivate you Remember, the, 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 I've said this, I think, before in here. I don't know. I do too many things. But don't forget the sacred, sacred order of salvation. The woman comes to the well. Who condemns you? Remember? No one condemns you. Jesus says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. There is a very sacred order to that story that's repeated a thousand times in the Bible. You're justified in order to be sanctified. You're not sanctified in order to be justified. First you deal with the original sin. Then you start dealing with the sins. We, what does it say in 1 John? Remember? Perfect love cast out fear. The very next verse, we love because he first loved us. That's a sacred 
order. And so that's what repentance, repentance is acknowledging, confessing, turning away from self-confidence in the sense that I'm believing in myself to save and to restore myself to God. No, repent, turn away from that orientation of life that is self-dependent or self-sufficient in my relationship with God. Turn away from pride. Turn away from self-sufficiency when it comes to my salvation with God. And turn away and put yourself in the mercy of God. I mean, the most beautiful way I know to express what I think saving repentance is is when a person comes to his place and he says, I give up. I give up, Lord. You're just going to have to have mercy, man. Have mercy. Have mercy. You know, you go to heaven, you know, the old St. Peter deal, you know, and he asks, why should I let you into my heaven? The only right answer is going to be, you shouldn't. I'm screwed. I beg mercy. Beg mercy? Did I hear you say that right? Yeah. Beg mercy. Come on in. Because that means you back... Why, you tell me why that's so important. Talk, think for a minute in your head about what our relationship with God should be like. And why does that definition of repentance fit that? What do you think? Looking for mercy means you know you're not qualified to move on. That's right. You can't do it in your own self. It's just not there. Good. And t- think about it. What's our posture with God to be? Humble. Humble. Mm-hmm. Not, you owe it to me, God. What an offense. Oh, really? You think? Or we're partners. Or we're partners. Yeah. Good. Or, I mean, think about it. The very heart and soul of original sin is rejecting God's gift of life and, and the source of that life and giving him thanks and praise and worship for it. You're not worshiping someone that's entitled you're entitled to, you know? And so the very heart and soul of, of, of this relationship with God is that I am at his mercy. I acknowledge his sovereign power over all of life. He alone. This word, the fear of the Lord, ah, we need a whole Bible study on that. But the fear of the Lord, think about what you're saying there. What do you fear in life? You always fear what you've empowered as the ultimate source of your blessing and curse. If you think money is what's going to control your, your happiness, you're going to fear money. You're going to respect it. You're going to work it hard. You're going to stay up at night worrying about your money. You're going to be afraid of it. To fear the Lord is to worry about one thing. How am I doing with God? And the answer is you're doing fine if you put yourself in his mercy. Because he's a merciful God beyond what you can imagine. You see? So, so that's repentance. Whatever else repentance is. Now, it's true. Just like faith, saving faith is what? Putting your hope and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, which then continues to work itself out by putting your hope and faith in Christ for what's right and wrong in your life and screwing it up and going back to justifying faith every day when you do. But it's still there. The, the same mechanism. Well, repentance is the same way. Saving repentance, that's repentance under justification, is acknowledging that I am in need of the mercy of God and that my salvation is a free gift of which the only response that is appropriate is thank you. But then, out of that thankful heart, perfect love cast out fear, fear's gone, and now I'm set free 
to do to love God. Now, I, wanna, I want you to uh, just stop and think about that. Is it possible to do a good work apart from justification or apart from that thing that I just, that order? Can you, can you love God and not be justified? Is that possible? What is love? Love is what? Something you give without any self-motivation, without any self-interest attached to it. Pure love is when you just give yourself unconditionally to someone else and there's absolutely zero condition, zero expectancy, zero self-interest invested in it. Now, anything I would do for God prior to my being justified would have as the, as the ultimate interest what? what? To save myself. It's I'm trying to get God. So any of this stuff that we do, Lord, you know, the old John Wayne Bull, you know, God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll, I'll live for you for the rest of my life, you know, kind of stuff. And, you know, it's this sort of thing of, you know, we're bartering here. That's not love. That's self-interest. That's actually selfishness. It's impossible to love God if you haven't already experienced his grace. It's impossible. So even your best of, good, of things, you can do a lot of good things in the world, don't get me wrong. But at the very heart of what you're doing is you're loving yourself. The only way I can be set free to love God is to experience the grace of the gospel where I now have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, nothing to barter with. There's no incentive for me to do this other than love. So how are you going to grow in righteousness, in good works? How are you going to repent of works? Well, first you need to repent of doing works for the sake of being saved. Very interesting. I think I had a one over here and then over here. Did you have a question some more over there? Uh, no, it was just an addition because I like to think of also mercy and grace because the grace is getting the knowledge. Yeah. Uh, you know, from the Holy Spirit and God. And I always ask for grace and mercy. Today. It's interesting you say. What, how would you, how does the scripture distinguish grace? They're very overlapping. They're very they're used almost interchangeably, to be honest. But there is a little nuance I think in scripture where grace is something given. And mercy is something restrained. So, the, you know, you think of the active obedience of Christ, what we're going to hear about this Sunday, by the way, whereas that Christ actually lived a life in order to give us his righteousness. But then he also died in order to uh, absorb, take away from us what we deserve, which was God's curse. So there's mercy, grace, active, passive. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. My understanding of the origin, the, the origin of the word for uh, repentance uh, means a change of mind. Yeah, and I think what you were talking about before, about a person's motives and, and, and that sort of thing, I think repentance is, is very definitely a gift, but it's a gift to be used to, to examine, to think about the truths in what you were, what you were saying. Well, I think that's all true, yeah. And just to understand what, what, what is the real problem that we have. And I think in a lot of cases, and I think this has something to do with the concept of saving faith, uh, I know a lot of people whose uh, faith is really placed in the promises, in what, the, what they can, it would appear, you know, what they can get uh, here. Well, my faith is in Christ for, for the promise, but the promises of Scripture is a valid thing to put your hope in, right? 
Well, if, if I'm putting my hope in the promises of God. So faith in promises is not a bad thing. The, the issue I think you're getting at is I don't then do, I don't work in order to get those promises. I've got to put myself in his mercy to get those promises. Am, am, I, am I putting my faith in the person? Right, right, right. To get them. Or yeah. in the gifts. And if, because uh, the way we perceive what we would like to receive today is a gift. It isn't always there. And so that, uh, but the person is uh, there. I think that's right. Yeah, the, the issue of change of mind, the reason I get nervous is that I don't, that's not the way you're describing it. I don't think you do this. But um, I hear it sometimes, and it almost feels like a change of worldview or something. You know, if you think of mind as just I've changed my view of, of life. Well, that's true, but it's really the change of a orientation, a heart affection. It's yeah, where, yeah, something something's myself. changed. Exactly. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? I think we're about in. Um, my glasses broke while I was over here doing all this. <laughs> um, so notice this. Uh, number three. Look what it says there. Uh, Two, buy it a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins is contrary to the holy nature and righteousness of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn them from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him. Notice that purposing and endeavoring. That's different. That's, that's, that's the new, I have a motivation now. But don't confuse that with repentance is good works. It's in purposing and endeavoring. Very carefully selected here. Notice three, although repentance be not be rested in as any satisfaction for sin, you see how careful they're being? You don't trust in your repentance. That's not what saves you. Just like you don't trust in your faith. Same kind of thing going on here. You're trusting in Christ and his mercy. But then it goes on to say, um, or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, Yet it is as such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. So therefore, we are saved by grace through faith. Oftentimes, you will see, it's interesting in Scripture, and don't let this get you messed up. Repentance and faith are really, some people describe it as two sides of the same coin. And I think that's actually true. If, if, if repentance is turning away from self-sufficiency, faith is turning to the, the sufficiency of Christ, right? The two do that. And so often you will hear um, in the scripture mention one or the other as what is required for you to be saved. You know, what, what do they say uh, in, in chapter 3 of, of, of Acts, you know, after the great sermon on Christ, by the way, not the Holy Spirit, this great spirit, you know, work of what's happening here? And he talks about Christ. Christ has come. And Christ is doing all this work. And he says, well, then how might I be saved? And what does he say? Do you remember? Repent. And be baptized. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, by the way, that order. But I won't get into that right now. Um, but the, it's, the interesting thing there is repent. Now you say, well, well, where's faith? Well, faith is assumed. And you can see the same thing when it says by faith. Well, faith involves a repentance. Repentance involves a faith. So notice that. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Again no matter what you've done, all, all that. Well, let's, let's end here um, so you can have some questions. We're 10 minutes. I, we, let's see here if there's anything I want to talk about in this next little section here. Yeah. 
I think we've made it clear. Just be, be very careful. We, we could talk. We didn't get to the false conversions. Let me just end with that point real quick, um, if that's all right. We start a little late. Um, what, are, what is a false conversion, then, do you think? After this conversation, you should be an expert on it. What's a false conversion? Sounds like something that comes from the mouth, but not the heart. All right. So would it be confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ for my salvation? Yes. That would be it. False would be, even if under the guise. So, so, what it, so there's some real sneaky ones. Does anybody know the term sacerdotal? That's the idea that if I, that the sacraments, if, if I just, if I've been baptized, I'm therefore saved. My confidence is in the church. Now, we believe, we have a very high view of the church, right? We should. The church always did. And the scriptures certainly do. It's a temple of God. Can you imagine the Jews saying, oh, that temple is not important? No, they would say it's essential. It's the very means of God's presence and grace in my life. It's how I get access to God because I can't see him. Remember, you go up and see God, you get, get, get killed. The only way we can see God, like Moses saw God, is through the temple. And the church becomes that temple, according to Paul. So the church is an essential element of the gospel, but not in the sense that the church saves us. It would be sacerdotal. It would be a false assurance if I'm saying, well, as long as I get my kid baptized, they'll be saved. Or if as long as I go to church on Sunday, I'm saved. Now, you're right. You want to be saved? Go to church. I mean, you know, Jesus has an address. It's at 135 Whitney, just like it's at every other gospel in church. And you can meet Jesus, and you're not going to get saved apart from meeting Jesus. You want to meet Jesus? Go to church. That's a done deal. But you still have to believe in him. And you don't just go to, you don't go to church and say, okay, I went to church, now I'm saved. That's sacerdotalism in many various forms. Okay? There's other kinds of false conversion. So you can actually be Christian-y. I'm going to church, but you're believing in the church, therefore you're not believing in Jesus Christ and his mercy. You think God has somehow entitled you because you've done this great thing of going to church every Sunday. You're not a Christian. So not everybody says, Lord, Lord. In that context, by the way, do you remember the context for him saying that? Crowds were very attracted to his signs and wonders. Very attracted to all the manifestations of these. And, you know, in so many words, he said, look, man, you're treating me like a freak show here. (laughs) You know, you're coming because of all the signs and wonders. These signs were not meant to be themselves believed on. These signs are meant to signify who I am. And you're missing the point. You're seeing the sign, but you're forgetting what the sign is telling you to go to. So you're saying, Lord, Lord, but you never knew me. You're saying, now there's another form of, of, of false conversions, what we call Phariseeism, right? What's Phariseeism? It's trusting in your own morality. Now, if you're going to do that, by the way, the, the big thing about Phariseeism is the only way you can be a Pharisee is two things. One, you've got to reduce the law to its most outward manifestation so that you can actually have a possibility to keep it. And then you've got to point out to everybody else around you to make yourself feel comfortable that you're not keeping it. So you've got to reduce the law. That's why Jesus says what? You know, to the Pharisees, you've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you, you don't get the law. The law is much bigger than you thought. It's, it involves the internal it's not just the external. It involves your, you even look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Whoa, you even, you just want something that's not yours. You've committed covet, covetry, coveting. 
You see what I'm going on? So that's the Pharisee way. Can you think of some others? Maybe you're converted because you're wanting to please your mom or dad. Maybe you're converted because, you know, you're wanting food and the church is giving you food. Maybe you're converted because you're in a youth group and everybody else did. You know, maybe you're converted. There's all kinds of... And that's why it's important, especially if you're trained to be an officer, that you understand saving faith and repentance. And you learn to discern it. So what is it? Anyway, any other... Can you, I mean, there's so many types of spurious religious conversions, you know. Confusing emotion and, and experience. That's another one. I'm, I'm trusting in my experience. That's something we've already talked about. Sometimes, too, like in the four spiritual laws, people say the prayer. Mm-hmm. So I trust it in a prayer. And again, I'm not so worried. The change is going to come. I'm just nervous about you judging my change. Or you judging my change. Or you judging my change. Why? Why would I be nervous about that? Because it's not your responsibility. We would be looking at the outside. We'd well. Looking at the behavior. And, you, and you, we tend to judge people out of our strengths. You know, it's real easy for me to judge you in areas that I seem to be not struggling with very much. I tend to see you, and that's the whole point of the Pharisee. Why are you seeing the, the speck in everyone else's eyes and you don't see the log in your own? So here I am judging, oh, I don't know, the rich person. Oh, they're just materialistic. Oh, really, Preston? You know? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, the temptation's there, right? I mean, someone that, like a Bill Gates, you know, but you know what? What would I do if I had a gillion dollars? I, I doubt very seriously. I know why God hadn't given me a million dollars. I'm not strong enough. <laughs> no, really. I'm just not strong enough. I know I'd blow it. You see, so why can't I, I, you know, so everybody's, God, you know, the thing that I see, especially as a pastor, is, is you know, God's working, it puts his finger on different things in different people's lives at different places in their life. You know, maybe you're working on the alcohol issue. Maybe you're working on the quit being angry at your wife and kids all the time issue. Maybe you're working it. And you've got all these people working at different things, and we've got to just not be judges here. So that's the thing that's scary, is, is if you're coming to the session and you're asking the session to judge you on behalf of Christ, binding and loosing as we're told to do, the first thing we can't do is start judging you based on my little pet sins. Because they tend to be the sins that you do and not me. And, and if you were to judge me, it'd be the same problem because you'd have your pet sins, and I'm not very righteous anymore. We've got to go back to body content. We've got to go back to that disposition of saving faith and repentance. Or, I'm, or we're going to be a very nasty place to be in church because we're going to always be judging each other based on our strengths. Well, let's, let's end it with that. Has this been fun? I, we could go on more. You want to go on more? Let's do it. <laughs> Somehow I didn't think you'd say so. Um, would you pray for us?